uh, <clears throat> we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 10, 9, 10, 11. Nine, chapter 9 was about Israel's past. Chapter 10 was about Israel's presence, present in, uh, during the time of Paul, and then 11 is about Israel's future. So next week we'll be talking about that, Israel's future. Well, thanks for being here today and, and, and braving the frozen tundra of McPherson, Kansas, the blizzard of 2023. You're here. <laughs> I'm from Buffalo, New York, so it's really not a blizzard, right? <clears throat> and those from Denver and Montana, um, you know blizzards too. <clears throat> well, have you ever had a clog, clog sink or a fuel filter in your car, which Enabled, uh, disabled your car from starting, or you, you know, get, get all the floaties in the sink. It's gross, right? Um, it, it can't flow freely. And in the same way, sometimes we can become clogged. But Paul the Apostle, he was a clean vessel of God. The Spirit of God could flow in him and through him because he was made righteous. He was made righteous. Today we're talking about true righteousness and, uh, and why those who are looking for it didn't find it. And those who weren't looking for it found it. So Romans chapter 10. Paul begins by saying, Brothers and sisters, speaking to uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. The Jews are Israelites. It's amazing to me that Paul had this compassion for the very people who caused trouble for him all of his ministry life and opposed him, and, and stoned him, and tried to kill him, but yet he wanted to see them saved. Uh, it, that is the attitude of Christ, to even love our enemies. And so that amazes me about Paul the Apostle. In verse 16, he said, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? So these Israelites to whom the gospel is being preached the Jews and Gentiles, well, many of them, most of them did not accept the good news of the gospel. Why hadn't the majority of Jews come to Christ and salvation during Paul's day? It had only been 25 years since Jesus ministered on the earth and since he died in, on the cross and rose again. And, and since, you know, all the disciples, there's a revival in the land because of all these new Christ followers in the book of Acts. It had only been 25 years since many of the people who are still alive would have seen the miracles of Jesus, heard the very word of God through Jesus, and yet they still refused to believe. They rejected the message. Just 25 years was during Y2K. That's like 23 years ago. That wasn't too long ago. How many remember where you were when the calendar turned over to 2000? How many didn't? Uh, a couple of you, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, was, I was in Lafayette. My wife and I were in Lafayette, Indiana, uh, and there were like about 15 of us doing a New Year's, you know, praise and worship service into the new, new century, and everyone thought that they'd shut the computers down, you know, and, and Y2K would be just a chaotic time, right, of losing information and such, and the electricity, and so when it struck 12, I snuck in the back and turned the lights off in the sanctuary, People were freaking out for a little bit. <clears throat> anyway, uh, verse 18, uh, Paul says, But I asked, did they not hear? 
Of course they did. Their voice was gone, has gone out into the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? Paul said, yes, they heard. Yes, they understood. They just refused to believe. Frank Turek is a, an apologist. He argues for the gospel, and he, he debates people on college campuses and such, and, and he's a great communicator. He, he said that he oftentimes will debate atheists on stage of college campuses, universities and such. And uh, he, he said, I've never really met an atheist who cannot um, present the gospel. They, they know the gospel. They, they know what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again and that we need to receive him for eternal life. They know this. They can recite it verbatim, but they refuse to believe. They count it as nonsense, and so they don't believe. In verse 21, therefore, Paul concludes the chapter by saying, but concerning Israel, he, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Have you ever held out your hands like this? You need perseverance, you know, to do it for any length of time, especially if you have barbells. But even try this for an hour, and it'll get really sore and tired. Um, how much more so when you're holding out your arms to someone that you want to welcome or that you want to extend forgiveness and they refuse to come? How much more painful is that? Well, that's, this is what God was doing for his people, the chosen people of Israel, and yet they were obstinate and they refused to come. They were disobedient. Why would anyone refuse to begin a relationship with God? Why would anyone refuse the promise of eternal life? For free just to receive it why would any why would israel refuse after so many old testament signs and wonders and, and the people during jesus day after witnessing his miracles why would they refuse to believe and why do so many of our friends and family members today refuse to receive this free gift and believe his name and maybe even in this sanctuary or listening online maybe there's one or two or three who have refused to really believe. Why would they? Well, this is what this chapter is all about in chapter 10. And let's look at why the Jews refused to believe in the message of Christ and why people today continue to refuse to believe in him. Well, first is, I mean, this is not brain, this isn't like Einstein thought, but they, they didn't believe, they believed a lie. They believed a lie in verse 2. Paul says, For I can testify about them that they were zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It was therefore based on a lie. It was based on falsehood. They heard the truth, but they rejected it as a lie. If a person is passionate about something, about their convictions, and they shout loud enough, and they, they post it on Facebook and on, uh, on social media, then of course it must be true, right? No, that's nonsense, right? Um, for example, Matt Walsh, who is uh, a Christian dude, who, who he's made a video series um, that's pretty, pretty new, and it's called What is a Woman? And is speaking into this transgenderism and um, understanding of what does it mean to be a woman. And so he goes on the streets and he asks people, and this is what the video series is, what is a woman? He asks experts, what is a woman? And uh, he asked, in this particular case, he asked this transgendered uh, guy, um, 
can you tell me what is a woman? And he answered, woman, women only know what women are. Women only know what a woman is. Therefore, Matt Walsh responded, are you a cat? She said, no, or he said, no. Can you tell me what a cat is? And he didn't answer. He just walked away. He said, I should have known. And so um, there's a Supreme Supreme Court nominee who was asked in the interview, um, can you give me a definition of a woman? And her response was, uh, no, I can't. The Jews had great zeal for God. They wanted to know him, but they didn't believe him. Why? Because they believed a lie. What specific lie did they believe? We're told in verse 3. Since they, the Jews, did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they believed a lie about righteousness. In other words, how can we become righteous? How can we attain a right standing before God? Is it based on our accomplishments? They would say, yes, it is. Obedience to the law, practicing the right rituals, um, adhering to the right rules, having the right upbringing, being the right race, um, good behavior, zeal, all these things will add to one's righteousness. And that's the, the view of the world today too, right? They viewed themselves as superior in righteousness over others, especially those Gentile dogs, the non-Jews. A Jewish man would have prayed a common prayer, and this would have been a Jewish prayer heard by any pious Jew, Jewish male especially. Thank you, Lord, that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. If you belong to Israel, they said, we are the chosen people. Those nations are not us. There were Jews, and there was everybody else. And if you're a Jew, then you're superior. That's what they understood. That's what they believed. When a pious Pharisee, which is a religious leader and scholar, when he would walk down the street, he would make sure that his, his robe was held in tight just in case the wind were to blow and it were to touch a Gentile and thus contaminate him as a pious Jew. So this was the mentality. Sometimes we Christians can look down our noses at people as well because they're living pagan, worldly lives, sinful lives, you know? Well, all religions teach that we must strive to be as best as we can to be acceptable before God. Only Christianity says that there's no righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. We can't be righteous in and of ourselves. You know, every funeral that I've ever conducted, and I've done many, we we always... Um, I, I always try to present the best qualities of the person. You know, their attributes, their characteristics, their um, behavior, uh, their accomplishments in life. And, and that, rightly so, we should do that as we remember those loved ones who have gone before us. And I try to represent the person in the best light possible. But at the end of every message, I always remind all of us sitting in the sanctuary or, or funeral home that um, for as good as this person was, and great as this person was, that's not why, why they're in heaven, or, or that's not why they're acceptable before God, um, because they fell short, as we all do. Even one sin is enough to keep us out of heaven before a holy God. Just one sin of thought, word, or deed 
in all of our lives is enough, enough to stain us. We need the righteousness of another. We need the righteousness of Christ to come and, and forgive us and, and create us anew. And that's why this person is with God in heaven, if, if indeed they, were, they did accept Christ during their lifetime. And I always make sure that I know that. So then Paul cites uh, Deuteronomy to point out this attitude of self-righteousness that the Jews had. In verse 5, he said, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. In other words, he said, if you really want to be righteous according to the rules and the law of Moses, then you must obey them all completely and perfectly. And then if you do that throughout your entire lifetime, then you'll be righteous before God and you'll inherit eternal life. The problem is, none of us have even come close to that. We fail on a daily basis. This is what... Uh, though makes sense to the natural mind you know be the best you can be you go to any bookstore and you'll see a self-help section that takes up half the bookstore these days and then a spiritual religion section a little minute or in a library too because what makes sense to the world is be the best that you can be pull yourself up by your bootstraps it means to advance and accomplish all that you can, be the best you can be. The etymology of this, word, this phrase, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, is different than what you might expect, though. It was first introduced in the late 1800s in a physics tech, textbook, and it suggested facing an impossible task. That's what it meant, which is totally opposite thought that we have. You know, to be the best you can be, it meant it's impossible to do what you're trying to do. The book sarcastically asked, why cannot a man lift himself by pulling up on his bootstraps? Because it's impossible. According to physics, you can't grab hold of the loop in the back and then elevate yourself. You can't do that. And so that's what the phrase means, which is accurate to the biblical teaching of, of Paul on righteousness. We can no more pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, then we can become righteous before God based on our own efforts. We all fall short time and time again. Paul reminds us that God's kind of righteousness puts an end to this type of legalistic following of rules and commands to make us righteous. It puts an end to the law. He says in verse 4, Christ is the culmination or the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. People might think, end of the law? Wait, the Ten Commandments are God's law and many other commands in the Old Testament. You're saying, Apostle Paul, you're telling me that thou shalt not murder is irrelevant? We don't have to abide by that anymore? No need to follow that law? No, he says in a few chapters earlier, he said in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So the law had a good purpose. It's good. The law is good and it's perfect, he said. And then others might say, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. So both Jesus and Paul would have agreed but this is confusing. What is the end of the law? What was the purpose of the law? Purpose of the law is twofold. First, to reveal God's perfect standards for us. 
It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to slander others. It's always wrong to break God's commands. And it's sinful. Galatians 3. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. What does that mean? A guardian or a tutor or or a schoolmaster in other versions. Um, The law was a guardian. When I was in elementary school, I loved having substitute teachers because it was always a challenge for me to see how much I could get away with, to be a stinker, you know, and, and, to, and make the class laugh and whatnot. And, uh, and so I just really enjoyed it, like it's a free day in school. Except for one day, I had this substitute teacher who's ancient. She must have been like in her mid-40s or something. And she was really, really strict. And I remember trying to get away with some things, and I I did one too many things, and I vividly remember lying on my carpet square in kindergarten with masking tape over my mouth for the rest of the day because this teacher was really mean and strict. Well, truth be told, I needed a schoolmaster. I needed a guardian. I needed someone to put boundaries around me because my name is Johnny Black and I am a sinner. And I, I was just, I was just a, a runt back then and deserved it. But then when this, my regular teacher came back, then there was no longer need for the substitute. When Christ came, there was no longer need for the law to guide us because Christ puts it in our heart. So secondly, um, the law was there to point us to our need for a Savior and his kind of righteousness. When I go and work out in the gymnasium sometimes, or when I have in the past, you know, I, I'm like good, depressed, 150, and I feel like I'm all that. Oh, look at me, I'm pressing 150 pounds up there. Look at that, look at that. Ah, and then some high school comes, comes in, lays down on the bench, and presses 300 pounds, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm not all that compared to him. I have a long way to go. Nobody's capable of becoming righteous by obeying God's law perfectly. It points us to our need for something greater, a greater righteousness, and that's God's righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus came to do what? He came to do for us what we were incapable of doing ourselves, namely obeying the law of God perfectly without any sin whatsoever during his 33 years. He was perfect. He fulfilled the law what we were incapable of doing. And, and, and so this is what grace is. He, instead of the law, we live by grace. And that's God's kind of righteousness. And here's the definition of grace. Jesus lived a life we could not live and died a death we should, we should have died to give us a life we could not earn. To give us a life we could not earn. What did he give us? He gave us his life, his righteousness. When we receive Christ, we literally receive Christ. His spirit comes to live within us. He changes us. He renews us and grows us. And we become more and more like Christ from the inside out rather than the external behaviors of being good, 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 good rules. He changes us. He makes us by his spirit more to be like him. And he sees us as righteous and completely forgiven from day one we receive him. 
Our sins are forgiven past, present, and future when we have the righteousness of Christ because he took all of our sin on the cross when he hung there. Every sin that we committed or will commit and in exchange he gave us his perfect righteousness. And that's what makes us acceptable to God in the past, present, and future after Christ. The only thing. So the Jews believed that the path to righteousness was not only they, said, they would say it's difficult, but it is attainable. Just try harder. Do better. There were 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the law. And the Pharisees would add thousands of new commands as subcategories under these 613 commands. It's called the Mishnah, or the commentary on the law, to clarify what the law meant. For example, thou shalt keep the Sabbath. That was one command of the Ten Commandments. To clarify this command in the mission, the Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories for what the word work means and what we could do. But under those 39 categories of work, then they had hundreds, if not thousands, of other sub-rules for obeying the Sabbath, like how many steps can I take on the Sabbath? Or how many letters can I write on the Sabbath? Or if I spit on the ground, can I, can I even spit on the ground on the Sabbath and make mud and on and on? It became a very, very legalistic system of do's and don'ts, and it became very burdensome for those who wanted to be right with God. It was a false teaching. So in verse 9, 6, he, he says, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Wait, what? What does that mean? Well, if you were a Jew and understood your scripture, you'd know that Paul was quoting Deuteronomy 30 here. And he was telling the people of Israel at the time, Moses was, in Deuteronomy 30, he was saying, before they entered into the promised land, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses said, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. You don't have to send someone to heaven and, and you know, the courtroom and, and get this mystery and make it clear and come back and tell us. Nor do you have to descend in the depths and, and rise Jesus from the dead again and have him come back and explain it all over. No, it's in your heart. The, the message of the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. And you Jews are making it so difficult and so complicated. So many rules and so many um, conditional statements. Moses is saying God's command and expectations are not difficult to understand nor attain. So then the last part of the message is how can we attain a righteous life? By works? Paul says never in verse 8. What does he say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. In other words, our mouths speak what our hearts are filled with, right? What's in the heart. We will declare what's in our heart. And when we declare, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. How do you want to be righteous? How do you want to attain salvation? First, we need, we need to confess and believe. First, we need to declare or confess Jesus is Lord. A Jew would have never declared Jesus to be Lord unless he believed that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, God in the flesh. They would have otherwise thought blasphemy. I'm not going to say Jesus is Lord. Jesus be accursed, they would have said. A Gentile would have never confessed Jesus is Lord because the rule of the land was the king was Lord, the Caesar was Lord, and that's what everyone proclaimed in the kingdom. And if I were to say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, then it might mean the end of my life. And so we need to declare publicly, though, that Jesus is our Lord. The word homo legeo means same say. And when someone is baptized today, they profess Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, and they want to live for him. Every time we have a baptism service back here behind that, that little box there, um, people give their testimonies. And it's important to publicly declare. Because, well, I'll tell you why. Because um, if we don't do it, well, never mind. We'll skip that for the sake of time. Someone once said, make a public confession of my faith. You know, my faith is personal and is private. And I would say, yeah, it's personal, but it's never private in Scripture. You don't hide your light under a bushel, right? Bill Bright tells of a time when he he asked a, a government official, a leading statesman, to become involved in this worldwide effort to reach people for the gospel. And, and the, the man said, ah, I can't do that. I don't wear my religion on my sleeve. My religion is personal, and I don't want to talk about it publicly. Bill Bright then asked the man, are you a Christian, aren't you? And the man said, certainly. And then Bill Bright paused for a moment and then gently asked, did it ever occur to you that it cost Jesus Christ his life so that you could call yourself a Christian? It cost the disciples their lives too, and millions of other Christians throughout the centuries have suffered and died as martyrs in order to get the message of God's love and forgiveness to you. Now, do you really believe that your faith in Christ is personal and private and that you shouldn't talk about it? And the man was quiet for a moment and he said, Bill, you're right. I'm wrong. Tell me, what can I do about it? Billy Graham said it's important to confess our public faith because there's something about making a public confession that seals it in your heart. It confirms it to your friends and makes it much easier to live the life you have openly proclaimed. And Jesus said it this way, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. We must confess. Secondly, we must believe. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 11. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Believe means to uh, place your trust in him. We all would say we believe in modern aircraft. We believe in jets and airplanes and um, yeah, we see them flying, and we draw pictures of them, and we talk about them as kids. Everyone believes in airplanes. 
But if you, re- if you really want to believe in the biblical sense, you not only have to have a mental belief and understanding, you need to hop on an airplane and fly over the ocean or fly to a different state, fly over Colorado, whatever, you know, because you're placing your trust in the plane that is going to make it, in the pilot, and, and that's what true belief is in the, in, biblically. Even the devil believes in Jesus, but he doesn't believe by faith. He doesn't trust in Jesus. He hates Jesus. Believe. And then uh, thirdly, we need to call upon him in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Which simply means, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm dead meat apart from you. I'm eternally condemned apart from you. I don't have strength apart from you. Um, I, I need you. Lord, please. I, I need to make you as my Lord, my master, my king. I want you to sit on the throne of my life. And when we do that, that's necessary. Call upon him. Confess him as your Lord. Believe in him in your heart. Trust in him. And then finally, last point. Do we have a responsibility as believers in Christ? Probably all of us, if not most of us in here are or listening are believers in Christ already. So do we have to do anything? Or, hey, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want. I can live anywhere I want to. Paul addresses that as well in the book of Romans. He said, no, of course you can't. Um, we aren't saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith that works. James put it this way, faith without works is a dead faith. It's just a mental faith. It's not a trusting faith. And so in verse 14, he said, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they have been sent? So we have a responsibility to share our faith with others. Um, You might be saying, but I'm not a preacher. Okay, that's good. But Jesus said in Acts before his ascension into heaven, he said, hey, go into the world and preach the gospel. He said it to the group, not just to the preachers. And he also said, you, are, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And here's how we can all be preachers in that sense. We teach the BLESS acronym here. Um, BLESS means if you want to reach someone who is an unbeliever, someone who doesn't understand, this is, this is what we do. BLESS, begin with prayer. Pray for them. Nothing will happen apart from prayer. L, listen to them. Ask questions. If you're a good question asker, you get anyone to talk to you. People are starving to talk and be listened to. And then listen. B, L, listen. E, invite them out for a meal. Eat with them. Because over the table, you can get a lot more intimacy. Um, S means to um, serve them. If there's anyone in need, then drop them a note or an email or a text or invite them over again. Uh, just to talk or whatever. Serve them. Make a meal for them. And then the, the last S stands for share your story. We all have a story, how we came to Christ, how we know him, what he means to us. But we have to earn the right to be heard. We have to earn the right and the trust of them. And so we do the preceding letters before we do the S, last S, share. That's how we can all be preachers and be obedient uh, and, and walk the faith. As it is written, he he concludes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
Uh, feet are not that beautiful. In fact, what I want us to do is take off our sh one shoe and sock right now, okay? And then share our feet with the person next to us. I'm not seeing anyone move, so we won't do that. And we'll discover that not everybody's feet is beautiful. We should have an ugly foot contest here sometime. <clears throat> but feet are beautiful according to God if they do what the head tells them to do. Jesus is the head. We are the hands and feet. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. And when our head tells us to do something, our feet goes that way, and we're beautiful when we obey him. Um, <clears throat> as well, heads can go, you know, in another without Jesus the head. If you're shopping in a clothes store, you know, my wife's head can go back and forth and back and turn, or, you know, I, I just see her do that all the time. But at, at the same time, as she, we're walking out of the store, we're, her feet are heading in the right direction, even though she's looking. So feet are important. They always land where you want them to go, usually. And, uh, and so he said, when your feet do that, then you're beautiful to me. A couple of years ago, New Year this is my last illustration, Newsweek magazine uh, presented this article called Religion and Street Gangs. They interviewed a, a preacher named Rivers. Pastor Rivers went to this inner city uh, to reach out to gang members and, uh, and drug, drug dealers and such. And so he earned the trust of a guy named Selvin, who was a drug dealer, gang leader. And Selvin said, hey, pastor, you know what? Uh, you and God, you're losing in the street. We're winning. Uh, we're reaching them. You're not. Selvin explained, I'm there when Johnny goes out for a loaf of bread for mama. I'm there, and you're not. You lose, I win. It's all about being there. When, when Jesus was on earth, he always went there to be with the hurting people. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He went to them. And he was labeled a friend of sinners and tax collectors and all sorts of riffraff because he always went to where the need was. And that will be a responsibility, but also a result of our salvation. That'll be living the righteous life, going there. And there's a bazillion ways to do that every week. Today I'm going to the nursing home. Once a month I go and I meet with some lonely, lonely people. Once a month. Uh, and I, I teach them a version of what I'm teaching you today. But there's so many ways that we can be there for people. So how do we attain a righteousness that is God's righteousness? First, we need to declare that Jesus is our Lord. We need to believe in our hearts that he died and rose again. He's there. He's alive for us. We need to call upon him and humbly say, I need you. And then we need to walk in obedience um, because we are his body. Let's pray. And so, Lord, thank you for uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ here who sat under the authority of your word, and I pray, God, that whatever I said today that's not of you, I pray that it will be completely forgotten and just fall off us like, like water on a duck. But I pray, God, that, there, that if your spirit wants to communicate just one thing that we can take with us, and it may be different for everyone, I pray, God, that your spirit will impress it upon our hearts and you'll change us, make, make us more like Jesus because we've chosen to be here and to worship you, to put you first early on a Sunday morning during a snow time. We're here obediently, Lord, because we want to serve you. Uh, so honor, uh, as we honor you, I pray, God, that you honor us by using us um, for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.